Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brick of Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the role of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Daniel Kamen, who will be discussing energy policy. Also, we'll find out what causes a tan. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. It's a beautiful week, isn't it? It's an amazing week, and uh, geez, the weather just keeps getting better and better around here in the uh, Bay Area. Yes, summer is finally here. Summer is indeed here. As well as a lot of crappy summer films, I noticed, but oh, that's about... Oh, like uh, uh, Cremaster. <laughs> Cremaster. <laughs> Word to the wise, do not go see the Cremaster, ever. <laughs> Any of those Cremaster. It just doesn't rise. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does, uh, It certainly falls, though, so one out of two ain't bad. So what's going on in science? What's going on in science? Here's something I want to ask you. Are you a frequent flyer? I, I fly whenever I can, especially when it involves uh, free uh, free bad movies on the plane. But um, there's something you don't have to worry anymore. Uh, cosmic radiations due to flying. Cosmic radiation due to flying. Uh, I was always worried more about the bad food and the bad service and the... Uh, the noxious odors. <laughs> the noxious odors, yeah. <laughs> Pissy guy next to you. But it's been known for a while that uh, the amount of cosmic radiation you get up there in the air is about 150 times what you would get down on the uh, sea level. Is that right? Yes, and it was... Um it's been thought that this could increase the rate of cancer for people who are in the air much longer. Oh, I see. Especially pilots and uh, crew members. Okay, and so the, the actual plane housing doesn't shield you from the uh, cosmic rays at all? Apparently not, but the latest study indicates that it doesn't have an effect on the cancer rate. Oh, is that right? Okay. Right. Although it turns out the pilots get more skin cancer, but there's a correlation that they also go on they take more vacations than the average <laughs> right. person. They stop off in Bermuda on their way to, uh, you know, Miami or something. Something like that. Yeah. It's how convenient, huh? Right. Yes. Tough life. Um, earlier studies have been to the contrary, so they're still reviewing these data. Uh, if anyone wants to know, they can go to the recent edition of the American Journal of Epidemiology. All right, well, if you're not worried about cosmic rays, uh, what's your favorite band? My favorite band? Are you talking about the FM band? or uh, uh, Well, any kind of band, I guess. Or uh, ACDC? ACDC? Yeah. ACDC is a good band. How about Anthrax? Anthrax. I don't think they're cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> were, were they cool ever? Well, this is, I guess that was the sort of uh, strange intro to Anthrax and its lethal knockout ability. Lethal Knockout Ability? Yeah. Not, not the actual band's Lethal Knockout Ability, which basically is any song they ever played. <laughs> uh, no, Anthrax, which uh, is able to disrupt the immune system in the animals that it uh, attacks and infects. You mean like cows? Cows or even people, right? Right. So uh, it's known that ba- Anthrax, or Bacillus anthrax, as it's called, has two toxins that it's known, mm-hmm. edema toxin and lethal toxin. 
And it's known for quite some time what edema toxin does. Uh, it's a protein that causes redness and swelling of the skin and other organs. Right. But until recently, the role of lethal toxin hadn't been well shown, but it's been recently shown that it can kill macrophages, and it can also, uh, now it turns out, infect dendritic cells. So it not only attacks your antibodies, but also part of your nervous system. Well, the dendritic cells, so I guess there's two different types of dendritic cells, right? These uh-huh. dendritic cells in the immune system actually go around and they signal T cells, which are uh, specific oh. immune cells that kill, right. uh, you know, invading bacteria. Right. It tells them, oh, there's an infection, so you got to go stop them. Yeah. Well, so it turns out what the lethal toxin does is it goes in, it disrupts the dendritic cells, and therefore then the T cells can't go in and kill the anthrax in this case. Wow, that's uh, very vicious. Yeah, so it uh, might be a new role for uh, the way anthrax can evade the body's immune response. So do you think there's a possibility that they could uh, find a way to uh, absorb these uh, toxins before they can slow down your immune system? It's it's certainly possible, and uh, people are looking at maybe ways of blocking lethal toxin. But one of the interesting things then is uh, to see if this actually is important, because uh, it turns out these dendritic cells actually take a long time. Right. Uh, to activate the immune system, mm-hmm. and anthrax kills much quicker than lethal toxin would have to actually infect the dendritic cells. Uh, so it's it's not even sure that this is actually a real mechanism or not. But if you want to find out more about this, it was an interesting study that was uh, carried out in the recent edition of Science. Okay, Charles, so you've probably heard a lot about nanotechnology and nanotubes, right? Oh, I've heard all kinds of great things about these small, 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 small wonders. Very, very small. Yes. Uh, so nanotubes are basically carbon-based fibers on the order of angstroms or nanometers. Right. Here, like moieties. The, the cool thing about them is you got a new, uh, new type of material, but uh, it turns out that we may actually have real applications coming along quite soon. Ah, so people just aren't interested in these things for academic reasons anymore. No. They actually want to make stuff out of it. Uh, apparently who, there's a very... Who would have thought? <laughs> what is the idea with that. Not just having fun, huh? I know. But um, one of the great things about this is uh, you can make materials which are very, very tough and very light. Mm. It's been estimated that this stuff can be uh, 17 times tougher than Kevlar. Oh, wow. So Kevlar is the fiber they use for bulletproof vests. Right. And if you can get something stronger, you, you protect more policemen, I guess. Right, and Kevlar is pretty heavy, too, so you could just make these things that are really, really light. And... Right. Uh, so a group led by Ray Boffman at the University of Texas in Dallas has um, extruded this fiber. He thinks it could go on for commercial viability very soon. Oh, really? Wow. I think the key to this uh, process is that you have these super strong fibers, but in a interspersed between them is like polyvinyl alcohol, uh, a softer material. Okay. And so you have a material that's very tough but also very flexible, so it can absorb shocks very well. I see. So it's sort of a combination between like very rigid sort of things but fluid things in between it. Right. Which allows right. it to be more... It, this is the same theory they have for um, for a spiral spilk. So uh, oh, they've okay. been using that for some materials now. Uh, it has like crystalline regions which are very hard as well as, you know, flexible regions in between them. I, I've always known that spiders were well ahead of the game, you know. Yes. They should get a professorship here. Hmm. So if anyone wants to know more about this, uh, you can go to the recent issue of Nature, uh, volume 423. All right, and finally, are you a big fan of sugar? Big fan of sugar. I love sugar. You love sugar. It's so sweet. <laughs> and it's, it gets you high. Oh, yeah. I can tell you're high right now. <laughs> Probably not on sugar, though. Hmm. Uh, but do you like insulin as well? 
insulin. Mm, insulin. Yeah. They should well, put in donuts, I think. <laughs> could only help, I guess. Uh, well, as many people know, insulin and sugar, of course, uh, what it regulates is a big problem for those people who have diabetes. Right. And uh, uh, the production, either the production of insulin is a problem, or the ability, the body's ability to, you know, bind to insulin and reg- basically regulate its blood sugar levels, gets to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so a number of people have been trying to figure out a pro- way around this, especially in diabetics, right? In certain cases, people take insulin shots as well. But there's a new strategy that's been formed uh, based around a particular enzyme called a glucokinase. Glucokinase? Yes. And this glucokinase, it turns out, can do two things, right? Mm-hmm. It can both stimulate the secretion of insulin by the pancreas. Okay. And it can, uh, you know, decrement the production of glucose by the liver. So are you talking about uh, stopping it from being formed, or right, right? So another problem, the blood? right? So another problem in in uh, many diabetics is that the liver just starts producing too much glucose, also, mm-hmm. which is a problem. Right. So this thing does t- two things at the same time. It can both increase insulin mm-hmm. and uh, reduce the production of glucose to begin with. I see. Which is a pretty novel thing, since no drug so far has been able to do this. Wow, two birds with one stone. Two birds with one stone. It's it's amazing work, and it uh, was done by Joseph Grippo and Joseph Grimsby by their colleagues at uh, Hoffman LaRouche in Nutley, New Jersey. Wow, sounds nutty. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Professor Daniel Kamen will join us to discuss energy policy, and renewable energy resources. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Ever since humans discovered fire, there has been demand for energy and the resources that provide it. They have come in the form of wood, coal, oil, and nuclear energy. Over the years, a host of technologies have been developed to tap these resources and to distribute them. But at the same time, our demand for energy has grown, and wars have been fought over these resources. One of the most pressing questions these days is, what kind of energy policy should we formulate? What kind of alternative sources of energy should we pursue? And how can we best protect the environment at the same time? Well, joining us today is Professor Daniel Kamen, Professor of Energy and Society, Professor of Nuclear Engineering, and Professor of Public Policy here at UC Berkeley. He's also Director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory. Professor Kamen, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I uh, understand you have interest in both science and policy. Uh, could you tell us your involvement in the energy field? The Energy Resources Group is my sort of initial appointment here on campus, uh-huh. and I work through them mainly on energy sustainability questions. So we look at a whole range of issues about how renewable energy can contribute to our overall energy mix, what are the technical barriers, what are the policy options, and what are the economics of it. Mm-hmm. And then through the School of Public Policy, I work sort of more directly on national and international energy policy questions. So for example, I testified last week in front of the House Science Committee on what's the future of nuclear power, which also ties into my third appointment in nuclear engineering. So. Mm-hmm. 
the goal for my lab is really to work on all aspects of energy policy and science from basic lab work, and we do basic lab work on wind and solar systems, all the way through the economics and the policy aspects of these technologies. And could you give us your views on what kind of energy policy we should be pursuing these days? Well, I think that we've got a lot of good options in front of us, and we're not using a lot of them. The, the biggest lesson that I've seen from the last couple decades of our fossil fuel economy is that we haven't learned a basic lesson, and that is that energy diversity is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We arguably fought the Gulf War '91 and the current Afghan um, and the current Iraq and then Afghan entanglements because the people in the Middle East don't like our all fossil fuel policies. So I would say you can more or less tie a huge amount of current problems to our over-dependence on Middle East oil. That would have meant to me that a more diverse set of energy options would have made more sense. And then the California energy crisis was also one of being too reliant on too few sources. So number one thing is we need to use our fossil fuels, particularly natural gas, mm -hmm. and wind, and biomass, and solar, and hydro, and geothermal, all very effectively. And we need to use them together and not make the market so that it's biased incredibly strongly towards one or the other. And let me give you an example of one of those strong biases we have right now. 95% of all new power plants being considered to be built in the American West are all going to be gas-fired. Hmm. Now, I would have thought that the most basic lesson we learned from the California energy crisis was that diversity mattered. Right. Clearly, that lesson didn't get passed along. What got passed along was that reliance on oil is a bad thing, but we're going to do make the same mistakes with gas. So I'm not one of these renewable energy aficionados who think that the whole world should be hydrogen or solar or something else. Mm -hmm. It's that we need to have a balanced mix of these. And the best way to do that is to improve the market access. What about Alaska? Should we expand our drilling there or stop it altogether? Well, Alaska is an interesting case. If you look at all of the oil and gas projected to be in Anwar, in, in, in the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve, and you were to make it all available in the economy tomorrow, and that's not going to happen, even if we do drill there, we would see that oil and gas hitting the market in around 2007. Even as a lump burst into the, into the economy, it's not going to have more than about a 10 or 12% overall effect. So to my mind, a 10% effect on our total supply in seven years is a useless gambit. We don't need that much. We could certainly increase or decrease our gas supply more than 10% by buying from a different set of countries like Venezuela, like we buy from Southeast Asia today, and not have to endanger what is a fragile habitat for essentially no gain. So there has been growing interest in nanotechnology these days, and some people even believe that it could be the great hope for our energy needs. Uh, what possibilities do you see here? Fortunately, things are beginning to change. We've been documenting in our lab the sort of steady declines in R&D funding for all, essentially all energy resources over the last couple of years, and that's a bad sign. Mm -hmm. But what we are seeing now, though, is that with the high price of natural gas and the volatility of gas, that photovoltaics are now blossoming in terms of new technologies. Right. It's not just photovoltaic panels that you see, but now there's a, there's a neat group down at Caltech that's developing solar paint that you would essentially paint onto a home or a roof, and you could then just use that as a very, very cheap, low efficiency, but very cheap way to get solar power out of the system. People are talking about thin film membranes and flexible modules, so that the, the technological options are increasing dramatically. Wind power has also gone through a huge revolution in the last couple of years. Wind turbines now produce power that is, depending on who you ask, it's either 
at the same cost or cheaper than most of the fossil fuel alternatives. Wind turbines that were in the old days low-tech but well-engineered devices are now very high-tech computer-controlled systems where the biggest wind turbines being installed today are now three and four megawatts in size. I see. And when you compare that to the 50 to 100 to 200 kilowatts that they used to be, you can now think about some number of these very large turbines having a really large impact. And we're seeing that in Europe very strongly. We're seeing little trickles of it here. But now Germany and Spain are ahead of the U.S. in wind, in wind power installation, and Germany and Denmark are ahead of the U.S. in building wind turbines. So technological options are there. Hydrogen is coming online in a variety mm-hmm. of ways. And a new way to gasify biomass is also available. And that's really exciting because biomass is our most common resource. But if you have to have boilers that, that, that deal with a solid fuel, that's taking a slight step backwards. Whereas if you can gasify the biomass fuel, now it can burn like natural gas, and now you've got yet another feedstock that can go into what we already have a good technology for, which is turbines. Well, speaking of other countries, uh, how is the U.S. doing in comparison to, say, Europe or Japan? Well, this is a sore point of mine, actually, because the U.S. has done a huge amount of research over mm-hmm. the last several decades on photovoltaics, wind, fuel cells, nuclear power, a whole variety of things. And the U.S. is arguably not the leader anymore in any of these, which is a real... Talk about a bad kind of technology transfer. <laughs> not taking advantage of the work we've done is fairly, is, is fairly tragic. We're not number 10, but the U.S. certainly trails Germany and Denmark in wind turbine development. Mm-hmm. We arguably trail Italy and Canada in fuel cells. We arguably t- t- um, follow Germany and Japan in terms of photovoltaic work. So we're, th- we're giving away a lot of technologies that we've worked hard on. Now, the good side, however, is that since the U.S. is not being very, shall we say, thoughtful on climate change policy, but the European community and Japan arguably are, seeing these technologies taking off in those countries is good for our global situation. But I just wish the U.S. would play a little more leadership role than we're doing right now. So a lot of work has been done in developing technology for, uh, for developing new sources of energy, but equally important is the distribution of the energy. Could you tell us how optimized we are in terms of the, uh, the power grid? Good, good question. We're definitely not optimized at all. I mean, in California alone, all the discussions about the bailouts of utilities all leave out the issue that the grid has been neglected for so many years, and most estimates are the California piece of the grid needs five or six billion dollars to just bring it back up to code, to bring it up to normal operation conditions. And that says nothing about all the neat things we could do if our grid became smart. Mm-hmm. The technology in laptops and cell phones and pagers would be enough if we coupled that onto the grid to allow every house, home, and store that generates power to sell it back in. So, for example, at my house, we have a 2.4 kilowatt PV array on the roof, a photovoltaic array on the rooftop. Right. And PG&E will grudgingly allow us to zero our bill out, to put as much power into the grid as we take out during Mm -hmm. the year Mm -hmm. to bring our utility down, our bill down more or less to zero. But we can't sell one electron into the grid. And if you think about it, that's bad on a number of bases. California has periodic energy shortages and crises. So small-scale distributed power generation on my rooftop, at the wind farm of someone in the Central Valley, someone else who has a fuel cell stack they want to plug in. That could be a good resource for the country. But in addition to it, think about the decisions I have to make when I decide how to size my photovoltaic system. I'm not going to build a system on my roof any larger than I might need at maximum 
because I'm not going to recover any more of that revenue from PG&E. But once you've already installed the inverter and the wires and everything else, adding additional solar panels is cheap. So the more possibility I would have to sell power back in, the more I'm likely to build an oversized system and put power back in because I know I can make some money off of it. Now, that same decision that I would make to install more photovoltaic capacity mm-hmm. would exa- was exactly the same decision as, a, for example, a strip mall or a small business might decide if they want to invest in a fuel cell or if they want to buy lease power from, say, a wind turbine. They're not going to do any more than they need because they're selling power back in is very difficult. So a smart grid would allow us to make much smarter energy choices. And right now, the utilities are really blocking that sort of evolution. Uh, you mentioned a need for diversity, but should nuclear power be part of this diversity? Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, you're never going to get people to, to agree on this on, on the technical merits. And I'm also a professor of nuclear engineering, as you notice, so I follow this one pretty closely. Right. Right now, nuclear power provides 20% of the U.S. mix, and we've had no new power plants built in over 20 years. Mm-hmm. But under the current energy bill in the Senate, there's money to go in as a very large amount of loan guarantees, about $16 billion, mm-hmm. to help restart the nuclear industry. Now, when you ask someone who's pro-nuclear, they say, look, nuclear is the cheapest form of energy. It's carbon-free. Mm-hmm. We obviously should be building it out. And if you ask someone who's anti-nuclear, they'll look at Yucca Mountain and they're in the risk issues. So you're not going to get... And we don't see a level-headed debate on the issue. What we see are strongly held ideologies butting heads. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the first thing we have to get over. We need to find a way to have a sane dialogue about the benefits and the risks of nuclear power and not have it just being an ideology at at loggerheads. What you asked me, though, was what do I think we should do about it, and I, I, I so far avoided the question. I'm actually quite comfortable with our current level of nuclear power production in terms of the 103 U.S. nuclear reactors are working quite well. Mm-hmm. They are operating very inexpensively in terms of the power coming out of them. Right. So in terms of the power plants themselves, I'm quite enthusiastic. I'm not, however, enthusiastic about how we manage the waste. I think mm-hmm. the decisions we made about Yucca Mountain are wrong. Right. I think sticking Nevada with it is the wrong way to go. And I think that the economics of nuclear power are nowhere near as rosy as we'd like to make it out because nuclear power enjoys some unique subsidies. Nuclear power enjoys something called the Price-Anderson subsidy, mm-hmm. which basically limits the liability of a nuclear operator in a way that other technologies don't get. So I would like to see, at the national level, an even comparison of technologies and pick winners and losers. And my, for example, what I would, what I believe would come out of that choice is not necessarily nuclear or fossil fuel or my favorite renewable of the week, but energy efficiency is our biggest winner. It's the cheapest form of energy, and if we simply use the power we had more efficiently, mm-hmm. we could make much better choices about do we want more or less nuclear how do we want to grow the wind industry? Right. But we don't do that because energy has become so ideological and not one where we actually analyze what's going on. So there's been a lot of discussion lately about moving towards a, uh, a hydrogen-based economy, but there was a, a recent article in Science that uh, purported the possible dangers or, uh, or drawbacks of uh, using hydrogen in such large volumes. Uh, do you have any comments on that? 
Well, yeah, that's actually an interesting case because that article, it was in, appeared in Science and it was published by some um, atmospheric chemists at Caltech. Right. That came out the day I was in, um, testifying in D.C. Right. So there was a lot of interest in it and the article got sort of instant notoriety because their claim essentially was that if you look at how much hydrogen leaks out of hydrogen pipes mm-hmm. and storage tanks and when you're refueling containers and you convert the entire global economy of, hydro- of fossil fuels to hydrogen, then the amount of hydrogen liberated could impact the ozone hole fairly right. dramatically. Right. And the result did get a lot of play for that. Well, it turns out that while I love Caltech, I was a postdoc there, that the authors did something a little bit unfortunate. They are quite good atmospheric chemists, but the assumptions they made about hydrogen are sort of bizarre. And they're bizarre to a couple levels. What they assumed was that the leakage rates from hydrogen pipes would be 10 to 20 percent mm-hmm. of the total hydrogen in them. Mm-hmm. And they did this based on a very, fairly old German study that, if you actually read it carefully, as we did once the paper came out, actually concludes that the leakage rates are about 0.1 percent, but that maybe overall with system handling, 1 to 2 percent was a possibility. Right. And that leakage rates of 10 to 20 percent were possible in old-style pipes that we have seen in, for example, Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Now, that means there's a, there's a factor of at least 10 there off, right off. Right. And then they assume that this hydrogen economy is going to replace all fossil fuel use essentially right away, mm-hmm. which no hydrogen proponent thinks that fuel cells and hydrogen-powered vehicles would be able to achieve a market share of, say, 30%, even within a couple decades. So you couple those two mistakes together, and they're off by a factor of 30 just at the get-go. And then they note in their own paper that if this hydrogen economy, when it develops, comes to fruition, let's say half our energy is coming from hydrogen sources, in 2050, then their results are not significant because by then the ozone hole would have been repaired, and so there wouldn't be an effect. Mm -hmm. They have to assume that they get to 100% of the world using hydrogen, in 20 years, and these sets of errors. So as I wrote back to a number of of people who asked us about the article, I'm glad to see atmospheric scientists involved in hydrogen work, but it's clear that their paper got reviewed based on the atmospheric chemistry, not on any of the policy assumptions that really make it go. So I think this is a case where the review process, Mm -hmm. peer review failed. Right. But I'm glad to see more active work in this field. Right. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, Are there any last words you'd like to add? I think the the main thing that's interesting from my look at at, at the campus right now is that the California energy crisis, the entanglements we have in the Middle East, and the new set of technologies emerging mean that renewable energy is now much more attractive economically in terms of security, in terms of environmental issues than it's ever been before. And it's, it's competitive economically. Ten years ago, I couldn't make that claim. I couldn't say that wind turbines were competitive today. Right. Now you can do that. Despite all these neat advances, energy is probably the area where we have the least number of graduate programs, the least students emerging, the least intellectual resources mm. to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's sort of the neat growth area for undergrad and graduate education right now. Professor Cameron, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. It's a pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Daniel Kamen on energy policy. Daniel Kamen is the professor of energy and society here at UC Berkeley, and he is also the director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory. And to find out more about his work, you can check out his website at socrates.berkeley.edu backslash tilde k
Kamen, K-A-M-M-E-N. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out what causes a suntan, so stay tuned. And welcome back to Bakri Rocks. And now here is a Tokyo kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What causes a tan? A tan is caused by the UV light hitting the skin and it produces melanin in response as a protection from the UV light. And that is how a tan is produced. Yeah, thank you very much, Tokyo kids. Very interesting that. Yeah, and now it's here, Dr. Professor Einstein with this week's question of the week. You know, I have a lot of hair on my head, but you know, some people say don't. Why do you think this is? What is this? Why are they so bald? It's crazy, I tell you. Just crazy. Because they're so bald. Well, do you know what causes the baldness? Well, if you do, or just think you do, you can email us here at groxathotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might have some more hair on your head. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. <laughs>